welcome to the Market Cuddle. Uh, this is episode one in a new podcast, uh, looking at everything to do with investing. I'm Gary, and I'm joined by Philip, and we're going to take you through um, what we do as we are self-taught investors and what we have learned over the years. Okay, so Philip, so when did you start your journey in uh, in terms of your learning? So I probably started saving and investing in earnest ooh, around 2007. But to be honest, that was quite passive. I didn't actively start doing anything, say actively investing on my own side and really understanding or trying to find out about it until around 2012. Okay, so similar, similar to me really in terms of, you know, probably slightly less than 10 years, but we're interested enough to learn and, and invest actively and so, as you said, today's topic is about risk. Why have we picked risk as, as, a, as the first topic? Well, personally, what I found over my journeys from uh, teaching myself about investing, there's lots of different types of risk that affect different things, and there's no zero risk-free option. But most risks I didn't understand for quite a long time. But, but surely, you know, putting your cash under the mattress or... Um, putting your cash in the bank, that's that's got to be zero risk, right? Well, I thought that until 2008, 2009, where we had runs on the banks in Britain. But yes, I mean, there's, there's the loss of absolute risk of losing money. But there's also other risks to do with loss of against inflation. Because with inflation every year, if your money doesn't grow by the same amount, it's losing money. And then you have opportunity risks where your bank suddenly has gone under and although you'll get your money back, it might be several months to weeks before you get your money back. And that's money you can't do anything with. And so there are risks that I certainly didn't appreciate when I started back 2007, 2008. Okay, so I guess what we're saying is that there is no uh, zero risk option. And even if you're putting your cash under your mattress, that actually by the very act of doing that, you're just becoming poorer over time. If you live in a world with inflation, which unfortunately we do, yes, every day, every year, it gets a little bit worthless. Okay, and and if you, so I put some money under the mattress for a year, what sort of loss am I gonna make in that year? Well, if we take the Bank of England's target, which is to have 2% to 2.5% inflation, if they do their job correctly, your money will have lost two to 2.5% purchasing power. So it will buy you effectively two and a half percent less next year than it did, would do today, and over and that's year on year every year, and over ten years it can get to be a noticeable amount of money. Thirty, forty years, it's a very large amount of money that you've lost relative to what you started with. Okay, so let's say we go to the other option that I talked about, which is um, you give it to your friendly bank manager. What are they gonna? do with that money you know they gonna are they gonna make you money they're gonna lose you money over that course of that year well that's an interesting one when you say you give it to a bank because historically banks and building societies most of them they borrowed the money off you the retail investor and then lent it to people either big companies through uh, corporate bonds to them or um, to people who want to buy houses and called mortgages 
but those bonds are over a long, long period of time, 25 years in the case of mortgage. So you, but they earn their money from the difference in the interest rates they pay you in their savings account compared to what they charge for the mortgages or for the corporate bonds they sell to companies. And these can be quite big percentage differences. Okay, so but you said you know two two and a half percent on inflation. So let's just assume inflation is two two percent in that year. You've given the the money to your bank manager, and he's going to look after that for a year. After that year, what percentage change? What's happened to that money in that year? Well, depending on what type of bank account you give it to, you could range from anything from like point one percent interest that year to maybe if you lock it up for a couple of years, you might be able to get two, three percent if you're really lucky. But the opportunities there, the risk you're taking is to get the higher returns, you're locking your money up, you just can't touch it. You can't get access to it if you need to. Uh, the other one is you might find you're only getting 0.1 and you can get access to it, but you definitely are losing against inflation. And even with some of the fixed term ones, you still get close to losing or just losing with inflation. Yeah, because even with my maths, which isn't great, 0.1% is not a lot. No. You need an awful lot of money to earn £100. Okay. In a year. <clears throat> okay. So you can tie your money up, you can earn a little bit more, but you're really not going to beat inflation very easily through no. a bank account or some sort of savings account where you're talking about investing cash. That's that right. Fair? Yeah, and that's, that's real liquid cash but there's also other risks you're involved in there because as soon as you lend the money to the bank legally it is not your money anymore you're just a creditor to the bank now admittedly you're higher up the credit list if the bank was to fail than other creditors but you're still a creditor it's not your money if it wanted is your money you have to put it in a safety deposit box and there you don't get any interest in fact they charge you money for the privilege so it's one of those things you go and even putting in the bank there's risks involved there so that's a very secure you know the safety deposit box is like a very secure mattress oh yes okay and you a gold-plated mattress okay so so we we let's assume we we've had the option of going to the the bank we've got a small amount of interest at the end of the year the money the money's safe though right you said that you know the you know it's not your money but it's but it's safe it's safe i so mean the risk the risk levels here are pretty low Yes, and even if the banks do go bust, of which they did do in 2000, a couple did in 2009, you are, at least in most Western countries now, you are protected to a certain amount. I believe it is £75,000 in the UK at the moment, equivalent roughly in euros if you're in Europe, um, where though the government will guarantee it. Now, of course, as, we, as I found out back in 2009 when a bank I did invest in we put a savings account with did go bust they don't give it back to you immediately there is a delay it can take a couple of weeks before you get your money back right okay but otherwise you will have it's not a complete liquidation of a loss of all your money mm -hmm. okay so we'll, we'll maybe come back in another episode to your um how we class it as success and failure <laughs> experiences of 2009 <laughs> as i'm sure there's a few for both of us but Okay, so lots of people in the UK view housing, property as an invest an investment. What's what's the risks around, or what's the options around uh, investing in housing? That's one that lots of people think 
uh, a lot about because it's something tangible, it's real, you can touch it, you can feel it, um, and most people have an idea and, and they think they understand it. But again, there's quite a lot of risks involved in that that people don't really appreciate. You've got one, depend, the risk, one of the risks could be how are you buying it? Are you buying it all cash or are you mortgaging it? Because if it's a mortgage of it, you've got a debt you've got to repay every month. That may go up or down with the interest rates in the general market. So you've got to finance that debt. Uh, you might need it to generate an income to be able to allow you to re, uh, to finance that debt through the mortgage. So you're placing risks involved with can you get tenants who pay on time? You have to maintain it. You have to insure it. And you're assuming that the housing market is a one-way bet. It only ever grows. Now, I'm just old enough that I can vaguely remember the last big housing bust in the UK, which is in the early 90s. And I do remember having friends that were seriously burnt in that period. But since then, even in 2008, 2009, the housing bust was nothing like back then. There wasn't the mass um, repossessions mm -hmm. and the forced sales by the banks at crash prices. So there's that one there. So a lot of people think that house prices only go up or they just level out. Other ones there is you have risks with the general market going, your house is only worth what somebody's prepared to pay for it. So if you're buying a house in an area that loses most of its major employers, you could suddenly find that your house is worthless because no one wants to live there because there's no jobs. Right. So, so, this, so the, again, it doesn't sound like housing is risk-free, but let's just assume you're well off enough to be buying a house just for income. Because we want to focus a little bit on investing here, and, and we'll, we'll probably at another point talk about in, in, investing in housing for um, you know as, as a home. And there's another debate there, perhaps. But so what? What's we talk about yield? So we talked earlier on about the bank accounts, and we talked about the cash in the mattress, you know, against inflation. So we said the cash with the bank would probably yield maybe a few percent if you're lucky. What are we looking at? You know, you keep the numbers simple. What percentage are we looking at to make? And this will be after costs. Yes. You said about, you know, maintenance and everything else. So after costs, you've got your rent in, you've paid the, the bills on a house. What yield are you getting on a rented property? And it's a very good point there. I just want to re remind everyone is what people forget is the costs. You have to, you have to look at it after you've cost. So say you paid £100,000 for this property and you can get someone that's going to um, pay you £500 a month rent. So that's £6,000 a year. Now, if you didn't take into any of your costs, your yield is 6000 divided by 100000 However, once you put in the costs of your maintenance, now, you won't need to do maintenance every year for everything, but you'll need to put this roughly the same amount because over time things need to be repaired and replaced. You'll have insurance as a tenant, as a landlord, which you must comply with. You'll have to pay taxes on any income you pay, um, of which their thresholds are lowering now because the government wants to change them or wants to go after that money. So you could be looking at something. So it all depends on what price you paid for the property and what price it costs to maintain and what price you get as a tenant pays you as his uh, rent. So you some areas you can get quite good yields, maybe four or five percent. Others, it can be very low, like certain bits of London can be quite low, a couple of percent, all because a lot of people have gone into that area to buy property for renting. So therefore, you're competing with a lot of other people and they push the prices up and they've maybe suppressed the rent amounts. It sounds like we're looking at 
a better yield, a better percentage return than on a straightforward savings or bank account. So is there other forms of investing that will yield better returns? One more thing just to mention about um, housing or property for that matter is what you'll often find is you're going, when you need to sell, it takes time. Now, as I found out over many years, what the professional investing community tends to call this liquidity. So basically that just means how quickly it is to sell something or how quickly it is to buy something. Now, if you can imagine with property such as housing, you can't sell it in an hour unless you've really put it, uh, made the price really, really cheap. It takes time to get people to generally go and get a mortgage to be able to buy it. Whereas if you're buying certain other investments, of which shares, which we'll talk about a bit later, they offer a different opportunity that you can sell and buy in minutes. So, I mean, we talked a little bit about housing there, and I think as we as we uh, alluded to, you know, buying buying a house as a home, you know, my personal view is that it's it's a home to live in. I think lots of people look at that as an investment, and if you're perhaps a great DIYer, um, so you're good at do it yourself, or you are you know, buying a shell of a property, doing it up, and then you can either rent it or turn it for a, a profit, then that's fantastic. But that requires other skills, which lots of us don't have. So you talked about shares, stocks. That's another op- option, I guess, in terms of investing. You talked about, you know, 6%, maybe less on housing, or based on the on the purchase price. What do you, what do you get? in terms of a, a return or a yield, as we said, on you know stocks, shares, a stock market type activity? Well, for shares, so buying parts of companies that are listed on say the London Stock Exchange, you can get anything from zero to maybe six, seven realistic percent. Some companies offer higher, but that's usually a quirk. You don't actually tend to see that much money. But the things, well, companies out there if you're actually getting a yield, it's because they're paying a dividend, which is money they return each year to their investors, their owners. Um, that's one way you get the profits from the company. Now, not all companies pay a dividend. Some big famous ones such as Vodafone, British Telecom, BP, Shell, they're renowned for paying dividends most every year however there are other companies such as they were usually considered technical or technology companies or growth companies where they didn't pay a dividend for years one example was Microsoft it's probably only about 10 years ago that Microsoft paid a dividend for the first time and they've been around since the late 70s so they were paying a good 30 years almost before they paid a dividend so with with shares you either get money because they pay you a dividend or because their share price increases because they do more business and the market generally thinks they're worth more and that's where you get your capital growth. So it it sounds like it depends and it sounds like um, there's a lot more variability but if you were to turn around and say you know you said you know we're putting the cash under the mattress minus two percent we're putting the cash with the bank let's say plus two percent we're putting money into housing we said well let's call it 5%, maybe a bit more, but a bit less there, but let's say 5%. If you had to give us a figure on stocks and shares investing as an average, you know, over, let's say, long-term investing, what percentage would you look to get? 
over the long term? Well, there's been some research done on this topic, I believe, by Barclays, and they do a yearly report. And they're going back, looking at the British market, back to Victorian times, because we have that sort of data around on what companies are around and what they used to pay. And there was generally, when you're owning stocks and shares, if you're holding it for the long term, the average is around about 7-ish percent growth and dividends combined. Now, that period is very averaged. You had some very large rapid growth, like you've had seen in the last 10 years with the UK stock market, and some numerous crashes where it lost half its value for several years, such as 2009, 2010, the early 2000s, the the early 1990s, the early 1980s, uh, the depression in the 20s, the stagflation period in the 70s, to name but a few. Okay, so lo- so lots of lots of risk potentially there, I guess. But you've really sounds like got to be in it for the long haul as an investor to ride out those let's call them bumps in the road, <laughs> um, for want of a, 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 a better word. So, I think from what we've described, you're talking about a scale there of of yield or returns on that money. I think rather than picking any one of those, you know, we we would probably look at a balanced portfolio, which is a, a terrible, terrible over overused phrase, but you know, it's a little bit of all of what we've discussed would be would be good. Is there any of those that you wouldn't invest in? Well, that's uh, quite an interesting topic at this current moment in time, because of course there's a, a very famous fund manager in England who's had experienced some very public problems just recently with several of his uh, funds. And uh, and if you can't guess, that is Neil Woodford, as he's been in all the press just recently. But he's quite, he's quite a famous and successful f- a fund manager, I think you call, you would call him, wouldn't you? Yes. And some of the things, he, he was very famous and made a lot of money uh, in the late 90s, early 2000s, even up to post, to the middle of the, this decade. He's still making quite... Um, very good amounts of money he's made for his uh, investors but there's also one thing there it's probably worth talking about is it's very difficult to do it to be right all the time if you're one person it's not easy to be right and get it right every time yeah I guess I guess if you're getting it right every time you're probably not quite doing it with a with a straight bat as they talk talk about yes playing with a straight bat yes uh, the last financial crisis there was um, a certain American who has found out that you can't get 10% every year for 20 years and be legit Bernie Madoff was his name ah yes Bernie okay so I, I think in terms of the 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 risk around the various invested options we've talked around and you've talked about you know the, the, the some of the issues you can have with investing in the stock market I think coming back to the balanced portfolio I guess there's one thing we haven't talked about today is you know if you're not buying housing and renting is buying housing even if you're renting which may sound an an odd approach something that you think is a good idea well when people think of property they just think of housing now that is just a one small fraction of the total property out there because there is offices shops shopping centers industrial facilities bridges, roads, particularly in other countries where they have toll roads and toll bridges a lot. So those ones, they're usually, as you can imagine, to buy skyscrapers, hundreds of millions of dollars. To buy, build a bridge is 
hundreds of millions of pounds, if not billions of pounds. You can't do this on your own. So often what you have are companies who manage property, but they're not in the housing end of the market, they're in the offices, industrial park end. So what you'll often find is when housing does great, doesn't necessarily mean to say the other rest of the property market does great. And when housing does really badly, doesn't necessarily mean that the industrial property does badly. They're because they're, although everything is linked, they're not necessarily perfectly linked. So you might find that actually you want some invested in property that's in the housing type, some that's in the office type, and some that's in the maybe the industrial or, or road type. And therefore that's where you're looking at as an investor, you'd be buying a company that can help you do that because you, you just couldn't finance it yourself. Whereas buying small houses for renting, you can just about do that as a private investor. Yeah, so there's so there's other vehicles, if you like, other other um, ways of investing in property other than just, as you say, bricks and, bricks and mortar and um, purchasing, purchasing houses or flats. Okay, Philip, so we've talked about various investing options and I think we were just saying that there's elements of each which you could consider investing in. Is there anything that we've talked about in those options that you wouldn't invest in? At the moment, I don't invest in property, certainly not housing. I just don't find it an interesting opportunity at the moment compared to other things you can invest in. I think a lot of people go into it. You see a lot of adverts about, you can't go wrong with bricks and mortar. And um, I just think there's better opportunities elsewhere compared to the risks uh, which some of them now for housing are political risks that you didn't have 10 years ago i guess what you're saying there is you rent yes um but even though you're a renter you invest yes and it's not like you've waited to be a homeowner before you've then gone to do other forms of investment and i guess the reason i raise that is because lots of people i think see this as a a serial process where you you know you get your first job and then you might be lucky enough to rent and then you save up for a deposit hopefully and you know the chances are you might get on the housing ladder and after that if you've got any money left you would say well i might i might you know put some money in the I might have some savings or i might actually put some money in stocks and shares so i think what you're saying is there's options where you turn around and say well actually no i'm not going to buy bricks and mortar as you said housing and you look to these other higher yielding or higher or maybe more potentially higher investment cases you get with some of the other investments yes that's correct yeah and i guess what you're also saying when you talked about the liquidity or the the availability of that money rather than putting it into bricks and mortar which is not easy to get at if that's your piggy bank for the future you're putting it in more available assets which if you do want the money you can that's correct so you know i know there's other issues here with pensions and bits and pieces but i'm sure we'll cover those on another on another another episode so i think we've talked through those elements and highlighted the risks and i think what we're really saying is there's risks with anything that you do doing nothing is a risk well one thing we haven't talked about today is probably what's called bonds whether they be corporate bonds or government bonds um, they're a little bit like they're another thing that's halfway between sort of like savings you put in a savings account of the bank and shares they offer they can offer bigger returns there is because it is uh, 
debt, you're effectively lending money to bigger companies or to governments. They're, to some degree, they're considered safer than most shares, but not as safe as most savings accounts, unless you're lending governments to very good, well-managed governments. But we will talk about those another time because they're also quite difficult to buy some of those. So you tend to have to do them via collective investment vehicles, such as funds, which we'll talk about another time as there's lots of different types of those. Okay. And where would that bond sit in terms of returns then against the things we've talked about today? So if you're looking at good quality governments that are solvent and know what they're doing, like the Germans actually you'll be paying a negative interest rate you'll be paying them you'll be losing money governments that moderately well governed and moderately fiscally competent such as our own you'll be getting a bit fractions of a percent depending on whether you're lending the money for two years or 50 years if you're at the 50 year end it's getting closer to five percent at the one two year end quarters of a pen half a percent quite low Mm-hmm. And then you're dealing with, say, new countries or countries that have a very bad reputation in the past or very, very small, don't have much in the economy. Uh, Argentina, uh, several, uh, shall we say, emerging markets in Africa. You could be getting 15, 20%. But you're getting that sort of money because there is a high possibility you may never see all of your money back. So there are some big risks there, and that takes a lot of more analysis that's even beyond what I do. Okay, yeah, that sounds like a fair, a fair um, variation in, in yield in return, I guess. Depends on whether you think you're going to get your money back or not. So yeah, maybe that's, uh, as you say, we can go into that in a bit more detail another, another time. So it just leaves me to say uh, thank you to Philip for joining us today on the podcast, and we will see you next time. Thanks very much. This programme has been presented for information and educational purposes only. None of the information or content of the programme is to be taken as an offer, opinion or recommendation by the programme's hosts or guests to buy or sell securities. Nor is it intended to provide legal, tax, accounting, commercial or financial advice. Opinions and comments are based on information from sources believed to be reliable. All investing involves risk as prices go up or down based on a number of factors. Always consider consulting a financial professional before investing.